Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back everybody to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And we're picking up again with step number four on obedience. And tonight we're on page 79, halfway down the page. And uh, it's clear from John's writing that our understanding of obedience has to be formed uh, through, our, uh, through faith in and through our vision of Christ himself, that he becomes the model for us, the cipher that helps us to, I think, interpret uh, how this obedience, holy obedience is to be lived, uh, both on the part of the individual who's embracing it, conforming himself or herself to Christ, uh, but also on the part of those who are responsible for the care of others. And uh, that there is a kind of gentleness, love, desire for salvation at work, at play there. And it's not a mat matter of, uh, controlling another, punishing them, uh, manipulating in any way, but only the desire for their salvation, well-being, and growth in virtue. And so the purity of heart and the uh, capacity for discernment on the part of the person who is uh, the director or elder has to be great, and uh, otherwise can be very destructive. And so we're picking up again here tonight with some of the illustrative stories that allow us to see the various facets of obedience in some very beautiful ways. And uh, again, we're picking up on page 79, halfway down the page again about the steward. The brother who was the steward of the monastery confided this to me. When I was young, he said, and was looking after cattle, I once had a very spirit, serious spiritual fall but as it was never my habit to hide a snake in a hole in my heart, I caught it by the tail, and by the tail, I mean the end of the business, and at once showed it to the physician. But with a smiling face, he struck me lightly on the jaw and said to me, go child and continue work your work as before without being afraid in the least. And accepting this with flaming faith, in the course of a few days, I received the assurance of my healing and continued my way with both joy and fear. So immediately, re again, revealing the faults uh, to one's elder, that uh, shame can often be something that holds us back, that we uh, turn in on ourselves, we want to hide uh, the, the failings or the flaws that we have. And so being able to trust in the mercy of God uh, allows us to turn to him with repentance and also then brings about uh, quicker healing. And to aid in this reconciliation with God, uh, the father of the elders, charity and love and gentleness uh, is, to, is to be you know, a powerful and moving force here as we see in him, you know, there's a gentleness there. He gives him a little cuffing on the cheek and, uh, and tells him, uh, you know, not to become anxious about it or the least afraid. And then within a few days, the, there's a peace of heart that comes to him uh, despite the serious fall. He goes on to write, every kind of creature, as some say, has its differences which distinguish it from others. So too, in the company of the brothers, there were differences both in success and in dis disposition. When their physician noticed that some liked to display themselves before people of the world who were visiting the monastery, 
that in the presence of such visitors, he subjected them to extreme insults and gave them the most humiliating task, so that they began to beat a hasty retreat, and the arrival of secular visitors proved to be their victory. Then an extraordinary spectacle presented itself, vanity chasing herself away and escaping from people. So, you know, the, the differences in disposition, I think is the first thing that stood out for me. That it uh, takes again, that great discernment to see that not every person is the same. The way the mind, the heart works is going to be different for every individual. And so uh, there's not one role uh, that works well for all, all people. And uh, so some need greater gentleness so they don't fall into despair, uh, but others might need uh, a firmer hand in order to guide them away from a particular vice. And this is what we see with those who loved visitors coming to the monastery, you know, to be seen by others, perhaps to become chatty with them. So whenever they would come around, they would love to, you know, to be able to engage them. And so he humbles them before them and, get, and gave them a humbling task. And the last line is interesting, vanity chasing herself away and is escaping from the people. So that whenever guests came, it became this terrible experience for them. They wanted to get the heck out of there before they were given a humiliating task. So vanity chasing vanity away. And uh, there's, there's such a, a wisdom in that. Uh, and again, they had to have come to, to see it over the course of time too, uh, what this physician was doing on, on their behalf. And, uh, but again, I, I think something like this takes an incredible trust in the goodness and the love of the superior that very few, I think, again, would be able to receive that in a good spirit and, uh, and respond to it unless they knew that there was great love behind it, you know, to be insulted or given these humiliating tasks in front of others. Again, I think most of us would probably, you know, find ourselves frustrated or angry or feeling that we were being punished. Uh, and, and yet, if that love is so clear and evident in the elder, it is something that can be received. And we've heard this in some of the, the previous stories, you know, the monk who's, you know, made to stand throughout the course of a meal or uh, even the thief who was made to lay at the gate of the, uh, of the monastery, you know, for years on end, you know, begging forgiveness or begging people for their prayers. Uh, that how does one do this? Uh, again, unless there is a spirit of love that is guiding it. Otherwise, it becomes something crushing to the spirit over the course of time, not something that is healing. And I think whenever this emerges within a family or, or within a community, it, those communities don't last very long, that one begins to feel that one's walking on eggshells or it becomes suffocating and uh, not life-giving. And uh, you know, when that uh, wisdom is called into question or when trust is lost, it's really hard to, to restore it. And so the care and the prayerfulness of the elder is every bit as important as the, the, the obedience of the disciple. Okay, any comments so far on this little story? Okay, we'll move on to about St. Minas on 80, page 80. 
As the Lord did not wish to deprive me of the prayer of a holy father in the same monastery, a week before my departure, he took to himself a wonderful man called Minas, who occupied the second place after the superior and had lived 59 years in the community, fulfilling all the various offices. On the third day after the falling asleep of this holy man, when we had performed the customary rites over him, suddenly the whole place where the saint was resting was filled with fragrance. Then the great man allowed us to uncover the coffin in which he had been placed. And when this was done, we saw that fragrant myrrh was flowing like two fountains from his precious feet. Then the teacher said to all, look, the sweat of his toils and labors has been offered as myrrh to God and truly accepted. So we, we often find this in the, the stories of the saints and their lives that uh, often some sign of their sanctity uh, is given uh, after their death. Uh, pro probably heard many times the stories of those who have been incorrupt that after being exhumed after many years later, it is as though their flesh uh, is uh, like that of a babe's and that there has been no corruption whatsoever and that they look like they are asleep. St. Bernadette Subaru, from what I understand, is, is beautiful. And the stories I've heard that people weep when they see her because it does seem like a person who's simply sleeping with this gentle expression. But often in some of the stories that we hear of the fathers is uh, something like this, that uh, a myrrh will be, or oil will be exuded, uh, that often will have these healing qualities or this sweet aroma to it, a kind of odor of sanctity, if you will. And this is what they experience in Minas. The fathers of that place told us of the many triumphs of this saintly Minas, and among others, the following. Once, of the, once the superior wanted to test his God-given patience, in the evening, Minas came to the abbot's cell and having prostrated before the abbot, asked him as usual to give him instruction. But the abbot left him lying on the ground till the hour of the office and only then blessed him. And having rebuked him for being fond of self-display and for being impatient, he ordered him to get up. The holy man knew Minas would bear all this courageously and therefore he made this scene for the edification of all. A disciple of St. Minas confirmed what was told us by the director and added, I was inquisitive to know whether sleep overcame him while he lay prostrate before the abbot. But he assured me that while lying on the ground, he had recited by heart the whole Psalter. So far from being moved to anger or frustration, at what the abbot had done, even when the uh, humiliation came before the rest of the community, that he was of such a mind and had such clarity, uh, was able to enter into prayer. So no frustration then distracted him or clouded his mind. And so, uh, so free was he from this that he was able to recite the entire Psalter while lying on the ground. Uh, uh, and to do that by memory, no small thing in and of itself, 
uh, but both things are sort of amazing. I think to have the entire Psalter memorized, but to have the clarity of mind, to be able to pray and to pray peacefully for all that time, not only the time before the abbot, but before the community as well. And so we're presented again over and over with, with these images of those who've been formed and shaped by obedience over the course of years. And for this man, it was 57 years, and that it brings freedom, that obedience brings dispassion, freedom from the passions in one's life. And in, in this case in particular, that of anger, that he was not thrown into a, a, a fit of anger over what his superior had done, but had such peace of heart and such freedom that he was able then to engage in prayer, to use that time, not in ruminating over what was being done to him, allowing himself to become the focus, but turning the mind and the heart to God. So, and it was a genuine humility because it's something that leads to intimacy with God that it, uh, the, the virtue itself then allows him to enter into prayer and, uh, and to focus his attention wholly on God. And so the time is not lost and there's nothing lost to him. In fact, what was, there was something far greater gained, you know, that he was able to spend the whole time, not just in enduring the humiliation, but he was able to spend the whole time in, in prayer dedicated to God. He goes on, the fathers, I'm sorry, in 35, I must not fail to adorn the crown of this step with this emerald. Once I started a discussion on stillness with some of the most experienced elders in the community, with a smile on their faces and in a jovial mood, they said to me in a friendly way, we, Father John, being material, live a material life, preferring to wage war according to the measure of our weakness, considering it better to struggle with men who are sometimes fierce and sometimes repentant than with demons who are continually raging and up in arms against us. And so it's kind of funny that they rebuke John in this, as he says, jovial way for bringing up such a high subject that he wants to talk to them about stillness. Uh, and uh, instead, you know, they tell him, no, you know, we, we are material beings. You know, we know what it is to struggle with ourselves and our own passions, as well as to live in a community of others who struggle with that. And sometimes are repentant, sometimes are driven by those passions. And so that's enough to keep us occupied. And that's where we want to keep our minds fixed on what is going on within our heart, rather than getting caught up in speculation or, uh, you know, uh, theologizing about the, the, the nature of stillness and what it offers. Uh, better to keep oneself in that place of humility or spiritual battle and leave that in the hands of God to produce within the soul. And that is the safer path, to stay on the path of obedience and humility, rather than to allow the mind uh, to drift into such matters. And it's then that one becomes subject to the actions of, of the demons. If they keep their focus clearly on the concrete matters at hand, 
their own personal struggles, but living with the members of their community, then in some ways they are protected uh, from the, the wiles of the evil one uh, to make them prideful about such things through their own conversation about it. And so it's not saying that we can never have discussions about such matters, but you know, they understood well the purpose of their being there in the monastery, which was to pray and to seek to pray unceasingly, to live in love with each other, to be humble and to be humbled by the circumstances of their life in the community. And that was sufficient to bring them where they needed to be. And for all of us in our day-to-day -day life, I think that's true as well, you know, to keep our focus fixed upon that which has been revealed to us in Christ, fixed upon the cross, fixed upon uh, what he's given us in the sacraments, in particular the Eucharist, the love, the mercy that that calls us to, uh, what the cross calls us to in terms of humility and obedience as well, that this is always the surest path for us and provides us with sufficient meditation. Anthony, so does I think therefore I am actually open us up to a world of hurt, drowning in speculation and fanciful thoughts, making us pray to demons if we take it as a life or cultural motto. And, you know, I think my initial response to that would be yes, that there are limitations to reason and intellect. And so to simply see ourselves as thinking beings you know, or that, that somehow is the source of our identity or shapes our identity uh, is a very limited understanding of who we are as human beings. And, uh, and it certainly limits us in the spiritual life because faith as a means of comprehending divine truths and comprehending uh, God himself and the love of God, as well as our capacity to discern our own weaknesses, our passions, and where, where we need to battle. Faith is always going to be the greater, the greater gift. And so it's not as though that they would be uh, against the use of reason or intellect, but to emphasize thinking or the process of thinking itself as being uh, that which gives us our greatest identity, that they would see that as something that's false, that it's uh, having our focus upon God and living in communion with him is what gives us our identity. You know, it's, uh, he's created us for himself and uh, to enter into that love and has redeemed us in order to draw us in the deepest possible way into that relationship. And so in some ways it's to choose that which is of lesser value over something that has limitless value for us to walk that path of faith. And that might be harder for us and less entertaining, you know, in the sense of our intellect and uh, reason might not be stimulated in that, you know, when we find ourselves walking in the darkness of faith or, you know, entering into that silence, in order to listen to God, those faculties are stilled. You know, the further that God draws us into faith and the, the deeper he draws us into that silence, then the more the, those faculties become quieted. And uh, it's that that we should desire. And certainly for the monks, 
fostering both the external and internal stillness has the, the greater value. And so I think that's why with John, they could tell him, you know, come on, John, you know, we're here, you know, not to talk about these things uh, uh, and to get lost in them, you know, that our, our purpose is clear. Good, good question. Great. Okay. So number 36. One of those ever memorable fathers who had boldness of speech and great love for me, according to God, once said to me kindly, if wise man, you have within you the power of him who said, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. If the Holy Spirit has descended upon you with the dew of purity as upon the Holy Virgin, if the power of the Most High has overshadowed you with patience, then like the man, Christ our God, gird your loins with the towel of obedience. And having risen from the supper of stillness, wash the feet of the brethren in a spirit of contrition, or rather roll yourself under the feet of the community in spiritual self-abasement. And the gate of your heart, at the gate of your heart, place strict and unsleeping guards. Restrain your unrestrainable mind within your active body. Amidst the actions and movements of your limbs, practice noetic stillness. And most paradoxical of all, in the midst of commotion, be unmoved in soul. Curb your tongue, which rages to leap into arguments. Seventy times seven in the day, wrestle with this tyrant. Fix your mind to your soul as to the wood of the cross to be struck like an anvil with blow upon blow of the hammers, to be mocked, abused, ridiculed, and wronged without being in the least crushed or broken, but continuing to be quite calm and immovable. Shed your own will as a garment of shame and thus stripped of it, enter the practice ground. I'll just pause there. That was, it's quite a bit in that, in those few sentences. But there, there, you know, he asked John, so if this is what you've understand that you've become, and if this is true for you, that the Holy Spirit has descended upon you, and you understand that you've been given through your baptism, through the Holy Eucharist, and that this has produced within you the same kind of purity of heart that we see and find within the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, if we are overshadowed by that grace and filled with that grace that we have the patience of Christ himself, then is this the way that you are living your life? And he goes on to give these really powerful examples, I think, uh, girding the loins of the towel of obedience. You know, so acting and imitating Christ uh, uh, when he washes the feet of his disciples. And if you remember uh, that scene. We've talked about it a couple of times in, here in the groups that prior to that, uh, of the, the washing of the feet, they had been arguing uh, amongst themselves. And uh, the James and John were seeking positions of honor and, in, the, in the kingdom. 
And uh, if you remember, even in, in one of the gospels, it was their mother who asked on their behalf. And so they enter into, uh, as it were, the upper room with, you know, with kind of anger and frustration, you know, at uh, the private reach of the James and John, but also the fact that they've been outmaneuvered. And so it was the practice of, if you remember, of a slave to wash the feet of, of the guests coming into a home, that it was a matter of hospitality to wash the dust of the street off of the, off of the feet of, of the guests. And since they did not have slaves, the apostles and, and Christ, that they would do this practice for each other. But on that evening, nobody picked up the basin and nobody picked up the towel in order to do it. And so uh, when he says, you know, gird your loins with the towel of obedience, that imitate Christ in this humble and obedient love that is will willing to, you know, gird himself and take the position of a slave, a servant uh, in the presence of one's brothers or sisters, you know, to, to make oneself the slave and the servant of all. Having risen from the supper of stillness, wash the feet of the brethren in a spirit of contrition, but better yet, to roll yourself in a kind of self-abasement under, under the feet of your brothers. That what is there to fear if embracing this kind of humility and obedience conforms us to Christ, makes us confessors of the faith, not simply in word, but in deed and in action, what is lost in doing so? that all that is to be found there is gain and virtue. The gate of your heart, a strict place of unsleeping guards, so watchful of every thought, unrestrainable mind with your active, uh, active body. So through work, and but through uh, ascetic discipline to humble the body and therefore humble the mind. So through fasting, prayer, vigils to humble mind and body and to bring it into order uh, amidst the actions and the movements of your limbs practice noetic stillness so even when you are engaged in your daily discipline in your work to maintain that stillness of mind and heart not to let the mind wander Curb your tongue that rages to leap into arguments. 70 times seven in a day, wrestle with this tyrant. So constantly wrestle with the tyrant of our own tongue. And, you know, it's, this is one of our great difficulties that we want to leap into arguments, to offer our opinions, to correct others, to add to what others have to say. And, uh, you know, within a monastery in particular, this can be a source of conflict uh, that whenever there is this lack of, of humility before others, allowing them you know, to say what is on their mind and without correcting them, adding, adding to what they have to say is a very difficult thing uh, or not to criticize. Fix your mind to this, your soul as the wood, as to the wood of the cross and to be struck like an anvil, blow upon blow with hammers, to be mocked, abused, ridiculed, wronged. And so to, to fix one's mind upon the cross uh, as our constant source of meditation, it's there that we see, again, the virtue of, 
virtues of humility and obedience, but this self-emptying love, canonic love. And again, this, the cross is always the cipher for us, the means through which we interpret everything within our life and how we are to respond to it. So to keep one's mind focused upon it and to remain calm and immovable, even in the face of this shame. And, uh, and so they're, they're telling John, or he's telling John, if this is what you believe and that Christ has made possible for you, that God has done for you, is this the shape of your life? Have you been configured in all of these different ways to Christ or have you chosen a, a lesser path? We have a couple of comments here from Rachel and Bridget. Rachel, can you speak about applying this teaching where one's work environment and the people one works with do not share the same goal or at least do not act like it? I'm thinking of the situation of blessed Paul Parazzo not familiar with him, I'm sad to say, uh, to speak to his circumstances. But I think in our, uh, and you could share it in the notes if you'd like, but uh, the people that we work with and don't share that same goal, I think both in the Evercatinos and here in the latter, we hear the counsel uh, not to gravitate to those who don't share that goal. And uh, you know, and I think whenever we are compelled to do so, you know, we, we would act graciously, but be guarding of the heart in the sense of not being drawn into something uh, less than what we've been called to. And if there we meet with a kind of mockery or scorn, we're told in this paragraph exactly how we are to respond to that, to it, and you know, to with calm and quiet and not to allow ourselves to be driven to anger. And we see the fruit of that, you know, in those who have borne it for a long period of time. I mentioned to some here who arrived a little earlier about uh, a movie that's come out called Man of God about St. Nectarius. And his life is sort of the perfect example of this slandered, uh, you know, surrounded by envy, simply for living a holy life and loving, uh, as so often is said in the movie, his children, his spiritual children, so slandered and exiled uh, from the place that he loved, not given, even though he was a metropolitan, he was not given a position and had to ask a government official for permission to be able to preach and is sent out to this faraway place, you know, where uh, there was no one around. And here's a man who's beloved, who's a model of virtue, who's a great writer, speaker, and yet is, you know, for all of his life. And it wasn't re until recognized and acknowledged by those who persecuted him until well after his death and in the canonization process that he had been wronged and had been wronged by them and by the church itself. And uh, so if you have the opportunity to see it, it's, it's available now. It had been released only in a limited way in the theaters, but had done so well that it was released a couple of times. But now it's available on iTunes as well as something like, uh, what's it called? Uh, Amazon Prime or Amazon that you'll, you'll be able to find it there, but well worth it. You know, every, every once in a while there are these good movies that capture, you know, the spirit of his life. It's a beautifully simple 
movie that does focus upon some of the things that we are reading here with a kind of perfect clarity. So I'd highly, I'd highly recommend it. Which is an unusual thing. I don't typically recommend many movies these days. Okay. So anything, and then Bridget, I think you had a question here and a couple more came. So hold on for one second. Oh, that is a hard saying, curb your tongue when you work predominantly with females. Oop, I did not say that. This is Bridget saying it. <laughs> True sacrifice to hold the tongue and not let one's face show emotion. Yes, you know, I think it is the hard thing, you know, and if we think about it in a monastery too, you know, that they're being told this to curb the tongue and that that battle rages on indefinitely until we are in the grave, that uh, this is where we are often tripped up, you know, that our tongue will leap into this battle with others. Uh, and so often this takes place, as you said, in, in the workplace, and it's not just females. I mean, I think uh, men are equally uh, troubled by this, you know, this kind of conversation that uh, is less than virtuous and that uh, is and, and humor and all kinds of things that are often done at the expense of, of others. And so there, you know, I think to guard guard one's heart and not one allow oneself to be drawn into it. And I think there is often that, um, you know, that scorn or mockery of that, that people will question one's not participating in it, you know, or, you know, criticize you for being holier than thou, or, you know, or lacking a kind of sense of humor or something along those lines or not being sociable, uh, because if this is the norm, you know, this kind of uh, fr freedom in the use of our, our speech, that uh, when there's a person who truly guards the heart as well as guards one's speech is going to seem odd or peculiar in the eyes of others. And I think we have to be prepared for that. And it's not just in the world. I think it's within the church. It can be within religious communities as well uh, that we can find ourselves slipping into kinds of speech that are, are harmful. Okay. And I think the rest was just talking about the, the movie about St. Nectarius. All right. Let me just finish up the paragraph here that we are reading. Uh, shed your own will as a garment of shame and thus stripped of it enter pra the practice ground. Array yourself in the rarely acquired breastplate of faith, not crushed or wounded by distrust towards your spiritual trainer. Check with the reign of temperance, the sense of touch that leaps toward forward shamelessly. So, it's interesting that it's described as rarely acquired breastplate of faith uh, that, you know, one of the things that the demons will do will, will seek to undermine a kind of faith and trust in one's spiritual elder. And I think this is what is being talked about here, not so much faith in God as it is uh, uh, faith in the elder uh, uh, under whom you are to be obedient, that uh, to disrupt that relationship in any way. And we see this in the story of St. Nectarius as well, that his beloved spiritual father uh, would not see him when he was slandered. 
And it, it broke his heart that he would not see him, he would not read what he sent him or wrote him. And he never saw him again uh, throughout the course of his life. And so, you know, this uh, kind of distrust can, I think, even go both ways, you know, where that relationship can be attacked in one way or another. And, uh, and so uh, to try to maintain a faith and trust in the goodness of the other is always important. Check with the reign of temperance, the sense of touch that leaps forward shamelessly by meditation on death, bridle your eyes, which are ready to waste hour after hour looking at physical grandeur and beauty. Still your mind, over busy with his private concerns and thoughtlessly prone to criticize and condemn your brother by the practical means of showing your neighbor all love and sympathy. By this shall all men know, truly know, dearest father, that we are disciples of Christ. If while living together, we have love for one another. Come, come, said this good friend, come and dwell with us for, and for living water, drink derision at every hour. For David, having tried every pleasure under heaven, last of all said in bewilderment, behold now, what is so good or so joyous as for brethren to dwell together in unity. But if we have not yet been granted this good, that is such patience and obedience, then it is best for us having at least discovered our weakness to live apart far from the athletic list and bless the combatants and pray they may be granted patience. I was won over to the good arguments of this most excellent father and teacher who disputed with me and in an, an evangelical and prophetic manner, or rather as a friend and without hesitation, I agreed to give the honors to blessed obedience. So, you know, to, to be willing to drink derision at every hour, you know, is a difficult thing. And to do so, uh, not, not again, simply for the sake of endurance, uh, but rather out of, out of love and to safeguard love and charity that uh, we are often, uh, we are told here, driven to thoughtlessly criticize others. And the same uh, struggle is, goes on in the hearts of our, our brothers and community. You know, this tendency to be hypercritical, to notice the weaks and the weaknesses and the flaws. And so the, the monk's mind turns to David in the Psalms, you know, how good and joyful it is for brothers to live in unity. It's like beard or oil running down upon the beard, you know, that uh, it's a kind of a sweet anointing that takes place to be able to live in charity with each other. And so it becomes this most profound uh, witness to the gospel, to the love of the gospel, see how they love one another. Uh, but it's also something that brings a personal sweetness uh, to the individual, that despite having to drink that which is experienced as bitter derision, that what is produced is something that is ultimately sweet, you know, that, that freedom from anger towards one's brothers and this ability not to lose sight of the good in them. And, you know, at the end we're told, you know, if this breaks down 
And if this is destroyed, then, you know, to, to live apart far from, from this and, and simply bless those who are engaged in that combat. You know, if we're in, incapable of sustaining that or if it is not present uh, to be able to, to separate oneself from it. This, you know, this little section of this step, I think, is incredibly valuable. And it would be good to mark this whole last paragraph. I think in and of itself, it's a profound meditation would even be, I think, something that would be good for an examination of conscience. Uh, these, in fact, these last two pages. So deeply does it, I think, speak to the struggle that takes place on a day-to-day -day basis for us. Before moving on to the next paragraph, does anybody have any comments on anything that's been said here in these past two paragraphs? Okay, so paragraph 37. And now, when I have noted yet another profitable virtue of these blessed fathers, which comes, as it were, from paradise, I shall then come back to my own unlovely and worthless bunch of thistles, the pastor noticed that some repeatedly carried on conversation when we were standing in prayer. Such people he stood for, such people he stood for a whole week by the church and ordered them to make a prostration to everyone going in and out. And what was still more surprising, he did this even with the clergy, in fact, with the priest. So after being you know, drawn into this, this beautiful discussion with a monk about how the life is to be lived. He says, okay, let us go back and see the reality and how it must be formed and shaped within a community. And so he, the, the shepherd sees, you know, this kind of conversation going on and applies the remedy, you know, and not simply, uh, you know, not acknowledging the years in the monastery or the dignity of office, but applying it to all of those who are engaged in this kind of conversation that can be critical. So for both clergy and also for the brothers as a whole to make the prostration to everyone going in and out of the church for an entire week. And, you know, we've, this idea of prostration has come up a lot. And to be honest, you know, it's in practice, it's not something I think uh, th that's been part of my experience, you know, as uh, a Catholic Christian and uh, except liturgically on occasion. And I think in spiritual formation, the idea of prostration uh, of making use of, of the body and, and one's prayer or penance in this fashion was not something that I, I heard of or that was taught. And I say that not as a, a, a critique, but it's just, I, I don't think it was part of our common spiritual formation. And a lot of those, the things I think that were more bodily were set apart, like, uh, uh, you know, so often the discipline or the chapter of faults was practiced by uh, communities for ages, for centuries. And it's really only been in the, the last century where you see that drift away uh, from practice. Some of the, the more bodily aspects of prayer and penance, you know, the corporal aspect uh, of penance, 
Uh, and I think part of it is that there is a fear of extremes in that, you know, there, and that we have to be cautious about. And, you know, uh, the saints warn us about this. You know, I was reading St. Mark the Ascetic this morning, and he warns against it. Cassian warns against going to the extremes in ascetical practices. But nonetheless, we... Uh, we we are embodied spirits. We 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 have a, a physical body, and to involve our whole being in our love of others and our love of God uh, is something that's very important. You know that we don't live our faith life only in our minds, but we're called to engage others in love, to serve them in concrete and tangible ways uh, that uh, can be seen, but also. You know, what, what is within the heart or a spirit of repentance uh, for our sins is to be expressed as well in our prayer. And so, so often within the fathers, whether it's Climacus or uh, the writers within the Philoclea, you know, that you find this mention again and again of prostrations, uh, either, you know, partial prostrations, you know, bowels you know, or all the way down to the ground, you know, to touching one's forehead, to humble oneself down to the earth, to the humus, you know, as, as human beings to acknowledge, you know, uh, what we have come from. And so to draw oneself down to the ground. And I was struck in this movie again, uh, I'll try not to mention it every other five minutes but about uh, St. Nectarius, uh, but, part of his spiritual life, they show that repeatedly, that as he's engaged in prayer and in the Jesus prayer, and when he's in a spirit of repentance for his own weakness, but also when he's afflicted and praying for others and for, for those who are slandering him, that he engages in it even more vigorously. You know, after each and every one of the Jesus prayers, he's making this full prostration and it comes up repeatedly within within the movie. And I, th I found it very powerful uh, because it shows him in investing his whole self, uh, his whole being in his love for his brethren, but also for God. And again, that prayer and his life in Christ wasn't simply something within the mind. And so not only did he fast and keep vigils and pray, but also these, uh, prostrations were made and made regularly to humble the mind and body. Because I think, you know, the danger for him in being so persecuted and the temptation that was constantly put before him was to press for his rights and to, or to become angry at not being made, you know, uh, you know uh, a metropolitan or a higher rank, I can't remember which, uh, which it was, you know, that he should defend himself and force the issue. And, uh, and even rebuked when he does seek justice for those in his care for his spiritual children is willing to go to battle for them when they're treated unjustly, but not for himself. And but so what he has to guard within himself is this spirit of humility, but also an, an obedience to those who are his superiors, even though they participated in that persecution, but not allow himself to be overcome by anger 
or by desolation for having been treated so. So to be able to humble oneself in mind and body through his prayer, but also his ascetic life becomes very important. And uh, since participating you know, more frequently within the, the divine liturgy, uh, it's very much a part of the public worship as well. You know, the constant refrain of Lord have mercy throughout the liturgy, uh, but, but of also crossing oneself, uh, but also making prostrations, you know, these, these profound bows throughout the course of, of the liturgy. And then certainly during the particular periods uh, of the year that becomes uh, more profound, you know, especially during Lent and during Holy Week. And uh, so I, I think re reading something like the Fathers, and I'm sorry to digress so much, about this, but uh, I think capturing something of this is not uh, simply an archaic practice, but something that they saw important for us as human beings and part of the expression of our faith and expression of our love for God and for others and an expression of the penitential life that we would seek to express it as fully as we can and to, to recapture this. And it's a hard thing because again, it's hard to find counsel in that regard. And so I think the fathers do become our elders in this practice and our spiritual guides, uh, that we hear it over and over again, that this is something that is important and that bears fruit. And uh, especially in fostering a spirit of humility and obedience. And so not to be afraid of practicing it. And I think uh, you might remember I mentioned a little article about beginners in uh, saying the spiritual life. And boy, I wish I could remember where uh, it's on my page somewhere. I wish I could remember where I found it. But the, the counsel was simply to say the Jesus prayer a dozen times during the day but to say it with a clear focus upon Christ, to have oneself fixed upon him, and then with humility to bow down before him, to do a prostration after each of the prayers while maintaining this con conscious attention to what one is saying in the prayer. And simply saying, saying it 12 times in this way is sufficient to begin to lay this foundation and to form and to shape the mind and the heart. It's not the quantity, in other words, but the, the, the quality of that prayer and the way that we are engaged in it. And I thought that it was extraordinary counsel, you know, to be able to say it out loud, to be attentive to what you're saying to Christ, but to approach him with that spirit of obedience and humility, and, but to uh, engage in the prayer where you are actively humbling yourself before the Lord. All these things work together in the same way fasting is important to us too. You know, it adds that bodily element. We are humbled in body, but we also experience that hunger within us, that desire within us that Christ can only fill. And when we link that fasting to prayer, then it becomes something that's incredibly powerful. But I think that's true of, of prostrations as well. So everybody tonight, a, a dozen Jesus prayers and prostrations before bed, bedtime. Okay, are we on 38? That's right, paragraph 38. 
noticing that one of the brothers stood during the psalm singing and with more heartfelt feeling than many of the others, and that his movements and the changes of his face made it look as though he was talking to someone, especially at the beginning of the hymns. I asked him to explain what this habit of the blessed man meant. And knowing that it was for my benefit not to hide it, he told me, I have the habit, Father John, at the very beginning of collecting my thoughts, my mind, my soul, and summoning them, I cry to them, oh, come, let us worship, fall down before Christ, our King and God. So again, you know, this beautiful thought of how it is that one collects one's thoughts and directs them to God and, uh, and exhorts oneself uh, to worship and fall down before Christ. And it's interesting, you know, the opening prayer of the, the mass is called the collect, you know, that we are collecting, the priest is collecting all the prayers of the entire congregation and, and leading them in the worship of God and raising them up to God. And so in a similar way, this monk is collecting all of his thoughts, all of his feelings, all of his desires as he begins his prayer, even before they begin the hymn, in order that he might enter into it more fully. And so to think about this, you know, in terms of our, our participation in the liturgy or the mass, that we would actively uh, be trying to collect our, our, as he says here, all of our thoughts and desires and to direct them toward God with as much zeal and, and desire as he expresses here, not to passively uh, participate. And I think this is something that we always have to guard against, you know, and this kind of passive participation in the liturgy. And, you know, really, to be honest with you, I think this is what the Second Vatican Council is trying to address, not the sense of people taking on various roles, you know, within the liturgy in terms of active participation, but the kind of active participation that is just being described here, that we aren't simply uh, observers passive observers of what's taking place, but we have formed the mind and the heart to such an extent that when we enter into the liturgy, that we are entering into it fully with our whole being. This is what it means to actively, you know, participate. And we do this, our entire ascetical life should be directed toward that end. If the Holy Eucharist is the source and summit of our of our life, then our ascetical life should be geared to our worship of God. And we've talked about this before of living from Eucharist to Eucharist. And so how we are living our life of prayer and how we are praying from moment to moment then has an effect upon how we enter into the most important of moments of the Eucharist itself. Anthony. His words are literally part of the Trisagian prayer prior to the liturgy. I wonder if the call to bow before Christ our King and God was incorporated because of the importance of this book and spirituality. That would be a good thing to uh, research. Uh, unfortunately, there oh, actually, uh, note 18 uh, refers to Psalm 94 6 and the church service books. So it gives us a pretty strong hint there that you're right, 
that it probably was, uh, you know, from uh, something like this, or maybe even earlier, you know, than John, uh, that uh, this was taken, you know, to be part of the liturgy itself. And that the monks would have known that, and this monk in particular had it had internalized it so deeply that it becomes, you know, part of his preparation for the liturgy itself. Good catch, good insight. Okay. So that uh, brings us to eight twenty-eight, and so does anybody have any? questions or comments about anything that we've read or talked about here this evening? Anything anyone would like to add? A lot to contemplate. And I think that's, again, the beauty of slowing ourselves down. But uh, again, you know, to think about, it would be nice to, to have you take away, you know, the, the, what we talked about in regards to prostration, but that, that one section as a kind of examine, you know, I think it would be two wonderful things to take away from this as well. You know, certainly there was a lot there that we had talked about, but I think to have this little section that we read on the previous page be a source of regular reflection would be a great aid in the spiritual life. All right. So when we close there for the evening with the our father boy, the hours seem to fly by. I don't know how that happens, but it seems like it's been five minutes. In the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you all.